The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is no substitute for professional care by your doctor or your qualified healthcare professional. Never disregard or delay professional medical advice because of something you've heard on this podcast or in any linked material. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Dr. Shirley neither endorses nor opposes any particular opinion discussed on this podcast. The views expressed on this podcast have no relation to those of any academic, hospital, practice, institution, or other entity with which Dr. Shirley may be affiliated. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty. This podcast is curated by Dr. Shirley Medea, MD, as the definitive source of holistic wellness through beauty. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast dedicated to fashion, the art of living well, and all things beauty. I'm your host, Dr. Shirley Madeira, your purveyor of this definitive source of living a beautiful life. Have you ever thought about getting a little work done, or maybe a lot of work? Have you ever considered a nip or a tuck or both? What does this entail? What's it all about? And if you haven't, why not? Today's topic is shape-shifting. Plastic Surgery Volume 1, a primer on operative plastic surgery. So what does plastic surgery mean? Plastic is derived from the Greek word plastikos, which means to shape or to mold or to model. The history of plastic surgery is actually a really rich one, and it dates back centuries and millennia. One of the oldest known surgical documents was dated from 3000 to about 2500 BC. Now that's before Christ. Reconstructive surgery techniques were being carried out in India by 800 BC, according to Wikipedia. British physicians traveled to India to observe rhinoplasties or nose jobs as they were being performed by Indian methods. And then they went back to England and tried to replicate these methods. Romans also had some skin in the game, pun intended. I just thought of that. I thought that was cute. So the Romans also performed plastic surgery, and it was cosmetic, more of a cosmetic nature. They were able to perform simple techniques such as repairing earlobes, damaged from anything from spears being thrown at them, and this was around the first century B.C. The first American plastic surgeon was a man by the name of John Peter Metower. And he, in 19, excuse me, in 1827, performed the first cleft palate operation with instruments that he designed himself. So this led to, fast forward, the development of modern plastic surgery techniques. The father of modern plastic surgery is generally considered to be, have been Sir Harold Gillies. And he was from New Zealand, and he developed many of the techniques of modern facial surgery, and he developed them after caring for soldiers suffering from disfiguring facial injuries in First World War. In 1930, his cousin, by the name of Archibald McIndoe, also put his helping hands into the war effort. And he's now recognized for developing techniques for treating badly burned faces and hands of the soldiers in World War II. Fast forward even further to modern-day plastic surgery, what we all know as plastic fantastic the nip and the tuck, the boob job, the nose job, the facelift. 
There are two general categories of plastic surgery or traditional plastic surgery, reconstructive and cosmetic or aesthetic. Reconstructive plastic surgery includes craniofacial surgery, and that's the surgical treatment of deformities resulting from genetic mishaps or irregularities. Reconstructive plastic surgery also contains or includes hand surgery, microsurgery, where a lot of the nerve and tendon repairs take place under a microscope, the treatment of trauma and burns, and pediatric plastic surgery or plastic surgery on people less than 18, children and infants. The treatment of cosmetic issues, what many of us find pretty interesting. So cosmetic plastic surgery is the second big category of plastic surgery, and it includes but is not limited to the following. Non-surgical procedures such as the Botox, the fillers, the injectables, the chemical peels, the vitamin injections, and cosmetic surgical procedures, abdominoplasty or tummy tuck, blepharoplasty or eyelid surgery, phalloplasty or penile surgery, what? Breast augmentation, what's commonly known as breast implants or the boob job, reduction mammoplasty or breast reduction, mastopexy or breast lift, buttock augmentation or butt implants, but buttock augmentation or enhancement can also be performed using fat injection, where you take fat from one place and you transfer it to your bum. Cosmetic plastic surgery procedures also include buttock lift, which is lifting the area of the bum by removing tissue above it and below it. Labiaplasty, which is a surgical reduction and reshaping of the labia of the vajayjay. Hmm. Calf augmentation. And that's usually done by silicone implants or also fat transfer added to bulk up the calf muscles. Chyloplasty, which is surgical reconstruction of the lip. Rhinoplasty, what's commonly known as the nose job. Otoplasty, which is ear surgery or ear pinning. It can also involve reshaping the ear. Ritidectomy is what's commonly known as the facelift. A neck lift brow plasty or a brow lift, and that elevates the eyebrows and smooths out the forehead skin. Genioplasty, which is augmentation of the chin, and that can be done using rearrangement of the bones, or it can be done with an implant, typically a silicone implant. Filler injections, but that's non-surgical, and we'll talk about that later. Brachioplasty, which is an arm lift, typically after massive weight loss and liposuction and jaw reduction. Now that was just a partial list of all the possibilities in surgical plastic surgery. So the basic tenet of plastic surgery, whether it's operative or non-operative, surgical or non-surgical, plastic surgeons adhere to this basic principle of maintaining or improving function and form. So it's all about form and function, right? If you look great, but you're not exactly functioning properly, or if a part looks beautiful, but it isn't functioning, then it's, the job is incomplete. So keeping in mind form and function for any plastic surgery procedure is critical. 
So what's it all about? What does it really take to be able to perform these procedures and to think about them in such a way that we can help produce a beautiful result? I can only tell you about my experience and my journey. So for me, after four years of college, I applied to medical school and I got into medical school. After four years of medical school, I finally, because <laughs> I took a little detour, I got into a residency. But it was during medical school that a student participates in all different types of medicine, all the different fields of medicine. And it's after those experiences, usually three to four month rotations, where a student decides what he or she is going to specialize in. So for me, having come from the world of ballet and dance, and a field that was very visual, but also very functional, because ballet is beautiful, but it certainly involved movement of different forms, different parts of the body to create certain forms on stage. So having come from ballet and that kind of space, I very much wanted to work with the human body, but I also wanted to be surrounded by beauty and work with aesthetics. So I decided that I wanted to go into plastic surgery. But I decided this a bit late, hence my detour. So basically, you pretty much should have decided where you think you're going to go in life by your third year of medical school. And I really decided at the end of my third year, and I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. Why? Because I love children. But after doing that rotation, and I saved that rotation for last because there's the sort of thinking in medical school that you obtain a lot of knowledge through doing a lot of rotations and then you save the best for last, meaning the one where you want to be the most impressive with your knowledge, you save that for last towards the end of the year. And I did that thinking I wanted to be a pediatrician. So I got all my knowledge, had my experience in various rotations, and by the time I got to pediatrics, ready to impress, I learned something about myself. And what I learned was that even though I love children, I really was not talented enough <laughs> or patient enough to be able to work with children to make them feel better. And one of the difficulties for me was that when I entered a room and I saw a child who was ill or not well, of course, you would try to console them and you would ask, little Johnny or little Sally, how do you feel today? Maybe you would get an answer, maybe you wouldn't. And then you would have to continue to try to obtain as much information from the patient as possible. And then, and I realized that I didn't have the patience for that type of questioning or for that type of patient. I realized that that was a shortcoming of mine and that I perhaps would not really greatly serve those types of patients. So I had a bit of a crisis because it was the last rotation and I thought I'm going to impress these people and I'm going to get into the best pediatric program possible and yet here I am thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not so good at this. So I had to pivot and in my pivoting, I had to take some time off because certainly by the end of the year, everyone was declaring where they were going and what they were doing. And I had a bit of an issue because I thought I was going to do one thing and it changed based on my experience. So I took some time off and it was really just a gap year. I took an additional year and I finished the rotations that I had to finish. 
And the very, 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 very last one in my fourth year was general surgery. Now I had discounted general surgery from the very beginning because I thought, oh, all those men, oh, all that machismo, oh, those hours and the trauma. It just seems so not for a lady who loved pink and sequins. <laughs> As it turns out, I finished that general surgery rotation. Boy, did I love it. I kind of loved it and hated it. I hated the hours. I mean, 120, 140, 150 hour work weeks. Plus, I was sleepless. The bags under my eyes were not designer bags and they were heavy and dark. But I was stimulated and I was motivated and I was excited and I felt that this was it. So I loved surgery and I had a few mentors in surgery at Brown where I did the second part of my medical training, and I'm really grateful to them. Dr. Victor Piccolo, who was one of my mentors, and because he had so much influence on me, I decided to take that gap year with him. So I would participate in his operations and he would teach me whatever he knew, which was a lot about surgery. He taught me about surgery in the operating room as well as surgery outside of the operating room. I also decided to do a research project and get a master's degree while I was taking this gap year and learning as much as I could about surgery because I knew it would be tough for all the reasons that I had initially discounted it were the reasons that actually excited me, but I knew it would come at a cost, if not several costs. And so I wanted to be as prepared as possible and he did a wonderful job. So fast forward, I finished that year of research and additional clinical training under the preceptorship of that general surgeon. I also improved upon my Italian. And, uh, and then I declared to go into general surgery. And I applied for residencies, and I got into my residencies, and then I began the rigorous training involved to be a surgeon. That's five years. And during those five years, basically... You don't sleep. You don't eat so well. You probably don't take really great care of yourself, but you learn to take amazing care of other people. So that was one of the values of that. Five years of general surgery, during which I got to do rotations in various aspects of surgery, different fields of surgery, hand surgery, thoracic surgery, heart surgery, trauma surgery, burn surgery, all of it, cancer surgery, gynecologic surgery. So I tried my hand at all of those, and ultimately what resonated with me the most was plastic surgery, how to make people beautiful but also functional, or how to make the functional even more beautiful. It resonated with me, and I had two other amazing mentors who were instrumental in my choice. So after five years of residency, I thought, okay. I'm ready to be a really good surgeon. But I thought, uh, I want more, which is not unlike my personality. So at that point, I decided to take extra training and train in cosmetic plastic surgery. So that was an additional fellowship year. So four years of college, four years of medical school, five years of general surgery training, then a cosmetic fellowship. And then I got to start my practice. So nowhere in there did I say I had business training. 
<laughs> Nowhere in there did I say I had, you know, marketing training. So after all of my training and starting my practice, well, that's another podcast. But here I am, a plastic surgeon, still loving what I do and feeling very, very grateful to be involved in the lives of people who allow me to help them to define their best version of themselves. So thank you. Moving on, enough about me. So here's some caveats to consider for both major and minor procedures should you decide to have any plastic surgery, whether it's surgical or non-surgical. You have to prep. I mean, after all, it's a procedure and it takes time and it costs money and it's about change, changing a part of your body, changing the inside as well as the outside. So the prep is really critical. Well, how do you prep? There are many different ways to prep, but from my perspective and in my practice, I ask my patients to do the following. To think about the reasons why they're doing the procedure or why they want it or why they feel that they need it. To examine their expectations and really ask themselves and discuss with their surgeon whether or not those expectations are reasonable, realistic, and manageable. So it's all about hashtag beauty goals. Consider the risks the adverse effects, which sometimes can happen and many times do, and the potential complications, which don't always happen. But it's really important to know the differences among all of those for every procedure, and your surgeon will help you with that. It's also important to know the benefits, the limitations, and possible results, ideal results, as well as realistic results. When you choose your surgeon, that choice should be based on credentials, communication, and your comfort level with that practitioner. Some people will say, well, what about cost? That's the other C. What are the, the C's of choosing a diamond? What well, are the, the C's of choosing a practitioner, a surgeon? Credentials, communication, mm, maybe cost, <laughs> and your comfort level. But ideally, it should not be based only on cost. I know there are a plethora of practitioners out there who perform lots of procedures, but ideally it should not be only and primarily about cost. You know why? Because you're worth it. And I hope I don't sound like a commercial. The other thing to consider is location. Are you going to do it in your city, in your state, down the street, in another town, another country? There's something called plastic surgery tourism where people feel that they really need to get away from everybody who knows them and perhaps at a better price. Now, clearly, there are fantastic, credible, talented surgeons all over the world. If you're going to choose to leave the country, please consider all those things that we mentioned previously, credentials, communication, comfort, maybe cost. But also consider that if there are, if there are any complications and if you follow up, which you should, there's additional cost involved in that as well. Something to consider. Other things involved in your prep should include your overall health. Generally, people who are not healthy should probably defer having elective plastic surgery until they're in a state where their bodies can handle the stress of the incisions, the stress of healing, the stress of anesthesia, and the stress of an onslaught of fluids and drugs. So please do consider your overall health. 
Consider your nutrition in your prep. Are you eating healthily? Are you having too much sugar, too much caffeine? Why does it matter? Because all those things contribute to your ability to heal. Not only the, the decisions that the surgeon has to make about how extensive a procedure is, but certainly your ability to heal. And believe it or not, folks, your ability to heal rests not only with the surgeon, but with you primarily. Also consider in your prep finances, and this is where costs come in. Surgery costs money, as it should. There are many people involved in helping to create the best result possible and to ensure your safety. In surgical plastic surgery, there's the surgeon, of course, the surgeon's assistant, the nurses in the operating room, the anesthesiologist, the anesthesiologist's assistant, the orderlies who help bring the bed and bring you in and out of the recovery room. It is a whole ecosystem, so it costs money. So be prepared for that because it's important and it's necessary. Please consider time. Schedule your procedures accordingly. Please try not to have surgery and then one week later have to get on a 14-hour flight. Healing takes time. You owe it to yourself to honor yourself, to honor your body, to make good on your investment of time, money, and energy to give yourself the time for your body to heal. Generally speaking, recovery from operative procedures that involve going to the operating room for two plus hours, give yourself a good two weeks. And that's just the beginning because healing takes place along an extensive continuum. What you look like and how you feel at week one will definitely change at week three and will be different at week six and month six, et cetera, et cetera. For up to one to two years is what it takes for a scar to fully mature. One to two years. So give yourself time. Something else to consider in your prep? Medications. You will obviously be given medications before, during, and after surgery. But it's really important to avoid the medications that may interfere with your healing or that may cause excessive bleeding, such as aspirin, sometimes too much garlic, vitamin E, herbals. One caveat about herbals. I remember in general surgery when I was in residency and I was doing endocrine surgery. That was my rotation and it was basically surgery involving endocrine glands like your thyroid, etc., so this woman was undergoing thyroid surgery, and it's very delicate, very delicate operation. And so everything so far, walking into the operating room, putting her on the table, getting everything's prepared. And then the anesthesiologist began to infuse the anesthetics. So everyone is waiting. The surgeons must stand aside and give the anesthesiologist an opportunity to do what they do best, which is to get the patient into a place and a space or an anesthetic stage where they won't feel anything and certainly hopefully won't remember anything. So we're waiting around with anticipation and expectation and we're listening to the monitors and the monitors were very regularly monitoring. Beep, beep, beep. And that was the heart monitor. And then we were watching the respi respiratory machine bellow up and down, and that was fairly regular. 
And then something happened. The beeps became further spread apart and the respiratory machine slowed down. And then it got to a point where alarms went off. So basically this woman's heart rate was slowing down to the point of becoming a serious catastrophe. Her breathing slowed down to the point of becoming a serious catastrophe. And even though everything was done according to protocol, the surgical team and the anesthetic team had a very difficult time restoring her normal heartbeat and respiration. All hands in, everybody, all eyes, ears, everything on this patient. Thankfully, things turned around. Thankfully, we brought her back. Of course, we had to abort the procedure because we didn't know what caused the catastrophe, the near catastrophe. And the following day after she recovered from her anesthesia and after a plethora of tests, a multitude of tests to try to figure out what exactly went wrong, what we found was that she had been on some herbal medications and had forgotten to tell her surgeon that she was on ginkgo biloba and something else, maybe St. John's wort. Yes, ginkgo biloba and St. John's wort. I'll never forget it. And as it turns out, those herbals can negatively interact with anesthetics and they can lead to big problems. So please communicate with your surgeon and please avoid medications that can lead to either disruption in your procedure or to a complication during or after the procedure. Something else to potentially consider as part of your prep, and this is a bit controversial. So it's been my experience that during minor procedures, during injectables, and sometimes I hesitate at calling them minor because certainly routine minor in-office procedures can become major procedures, but in-office injectables, I've noticed that with some of my patients that they tend to be a little bit more sensitive or have more discomfort um, and may bleed a little bit more after the needle is injected around the time of their menstrual cycles. So this has been examined in the scientific literature and at least according to the literature, there's no correlation that can be proven scientifically. But it's been my experience, what we called anecdotal evidence, that this may be an issue for some people. So if you think you're going to be really sensitive or have more pain and potentially bleed more, which can lead to more bruising, then you may want to hold off until the week or two after your cycle for women, of course. The other thing you may want to consider during your prep is numbing medication. So injectables hurt. They involve needles. Do you want to have a topical numbing medication before the procedure? Or do you want your surgeon to use a numbing injection like they do at the dentist? So things to consider, not necessarily necessary, but again, something to consider as part of your prep. So in summary, in terms of considering a major or a minor procedure, you should be in a healthy state physically and mentally. Thus, you should be a health, in a healthy state of mind and you should consider your beauty goals. And once you do that, please dedicate yourself to the prep. Now, what about recovery? 
and post-procedure instructions. Some of the things that I mentioned in the prep also apply to the post-procedure instructions. Nutrition. Actually, there are things that you should be eating to help you heal and to recover and things you should be avoiding. So please avoid lots of sugar. Definitely up on your protein, increase your protein intake because you need protein to heal. Fruits, green leafy vegetables, because of the vitamins and minerals that they provide as substrates for your body's immune system to help clear out the medications that you receive during surgery, to clear out the narcotics for pain control, to clear out the anesthetics, and to help you to heal. And also a note of nutrition, water. I think I mentioned in my uh, first podcast about uh, beauty that there was a book that I'm absolutely obsessed with, and it's called You're Not Sick, You're Thirsty. And I'm still reading that book. I only have a couple of chapters left, but suffice it to say that water helps to heal. I generally ask people to drink 1.5 to 2 liters of water a day. And if you don't do that on a daily basis, and believe me, it's challenging for me to do so as well. It's a little challenging to go to the loo every 20 to 30 minutes, especially in between procedures and certainly not during surgery. But particularly during the post-operative period to recover from surgery, please try to drink 1.5 to 2 liters of water a, a day at least during the post-operative period, if not every day for the rest of your life. Time. As I mentioned for the prep, time is obviously important after the procedure. Give yourself the time to heal, the downtime. And depending on the procedure, it could be anywhere from hours to days to weeks. And again, it takes one to two years for a scar to fully mature. So ultimately, you may get your best result after a year. And that's very common. Other post-procedure tips. Use ice packs and other healing aids. Arnica. Also avoid meds or medications that increase bleeding and bruising, such as aspirin or non-steroidals like uh, Motrin or Nuprin. Also avoid some herbals because they can contribute to increased bleeding. Well, what about some of those healing aids? What I call the complements to healing. They include water, as discussed, rest. That's part of your recovery, rest. I had a patient who flew in from Florida, and I was honored. She came to see me and wanted me to perform her facelift. And after the appropriate consultation and the instructions and the surgical prep and all that discussion, we went to surgery. Thankfully, everything went well. She had a beautiful result, and she followed instructions to the letter. And I was happy and I was proud. So when I saw her in follow-up, I asked her how everything was going. And this was probably four or five days after the procedure. And she walked in and she said, oh my gosh, it was fantastic. I mean, you discharged me from the hospital the next day and I went straight to Barney's. And I kept asking, you know, the people at Barney's, hey, does it look like I had a facelift? <laughs> of course, I was in shock. Because certainly when I told her that she can go back to activities of daily living, I certainly didn't expect her to go shopping at Barney's and show her incisions to everyone. So please give yourself some time away from the public eye, away from red carpets, away from parties, just to decompress and allow yourself to heal. You really do need the time. You can go to Barney's after week one. 
or any other store you'd like to go to. Other compliments to healing besides water and rest, multivitamins, supplements, obviously good nutrition, which we've mentioned a number of times. Now I have a whole protocol of vitamins and supplements that I suggest that my patients take before and after surgery. And you can get more of that information by contacting me because it's quite a list and it's quite a protocol. The other post-operative tip is please comply with instructions. Another story for you. I performed a facelift on a patient and she was very anxious to get out there and show her new face and just be everything she wanted to be. One of the instructions was not to color one's hair immediately after surgery, but to take care of it one to two weeks before surgery. But this patient really, really loved her blonde highlights and so proceeded within a week or two of surgery to get her hair colored. She comes to me in follow-up and right along the hairline, the suture line fell apart and it opened up probably, perhaps, related to the chemicals that were applied directly near, if not on, the incision. So that was a good result, where one aspect of that result became a complication. And as with all patients, you are married together forever. So we obviously, thankfully, got through that, but that was an unexpected situation. So please follow instructions. If you truly are invested in the best result possible, just do what I say. Thank you. And as part of adhering to post-operative instructions, please comply with your follow-up. It's important to maintain that two-way communication between you and your surgeon. It's important to go to the follow-ups. If you can't make it on the Tuesday or the Thursday that you were scheduled, please call and reschedule it. And it's important because that's the way the surgeon is able to follow your progress and able to follow your healing and able to perhaps preempt or determine in advance whether or not something may need to be addressed later down the line. So your follow-up is important. Now, if you have gone out of the country for your follow-up, That might be a little bit of an issue. So think about that too before you schedule your procedure in the country or abroad. Let's get to a little bit more about complements of healing. I mentioned one sort of what's considered an alternative medication, Arnica, earlier. I'd like to talk a little bit more about what that is and some of those other homeopathic medications. So Arnica is, Arnica Montana is a homeopathic remedy. The ones that I use in my practice are Arnica Montana, Calendula Officinalis, and a few others, and they're considered wellness therapies. Well, what exactly is homeopathy? So homeopathy is a field of medicine, and it's based on a few basic laws or tenets. And one is called the law of similars. And what that is, is that like 
treats like. It's the idea that a disease or a condition can be cured by a substance that produces similar symptoms in a healthy person, but is administered in such diluted, minute doses that rather than causing the condition, it actually stimulates your own body's immune system and your own body's mechanisms to attempt to heal that condition. The second law of homeopathy is that of the law of the minimum dose. And that's the idea that a lower dose of that substance or remedy or medication, the lower the dose, the greater its effectiveness. So it's like the opposite. And some of these homeopathic remedies or products come from plants, um, minerals, um, vitamins, animals, such as crushed whole bees. And I know that sounds cruel to animals, but in the interest of helping humans, it may not be so bad. And some of these homeopathic remedies are often made as sugar pellets to be placed on or under the tongue. And they're not, the sugar dose is not so high that you have to be worried about that, but it is something to consider. The homeopathic products may also be available in other forms that can be applied topically, such as gels and creams and ointments, in addition to the tablets. And the other thing about homeopathy is that the treatment is individualized, and I'm a huge proponent of customization and personalization in medicine. So the treatments are tailored to each person. So if you were to ever go into a homeopathic physician's office and have a consultation, it will take at least an hour, and they will ask you about all sorts of things that you didn't think were related to the very reason that you were going in for, but believe me, it's all related. So it's common for different people with the same condition in homeopathy to be treated with different products. So that's another caveat of homeopathy. So it's something to consider. Is it considered alternative medicine, which it is in the United States, or is it universally accepted medicine as it is in Europe and Asia? Is it pseudoscience, as some practitioners consider it to be in the United States due to its lack of scientific evidence? Or is there some value to it because there is a large amount of anecdotal evidence as well as some scientific studies to account for the fact that in some people it's actually helpful? My opinion is that it's been helpful in my practice. It's been positive. And if it can help but not hurt, then why not? So I am a proponent of homeopathy in a very targeted way as it relates to my practice, and I do use it in my practice. So that's Plastic Surgery 101. There's a lot to consider. There's a huge menu of procedures that you may want to research. And do know that it isn't for everyone, But if it isn't for you, it also shouldn't be something to judge. I'd like to end with just a couple of thoughts on plastic surgery. And of course, I may be biased because I am a plastic surgeon and I love what I do. But for whatever it's worth to you, you may take it or leave it. There's no judgment in investing in yourself by undergoing plastic surgery or another procedure. There's something out there for everyone should you decide to go under the needle or the knife. Any aspect of your appearance, whether small or large, can be changed 
if you feel the need or the desire. If you are going to do it, do it for yourself. Please don't do it because you're trying to look like your ex-husband's new girlfriend. Please don't do it because you feel less than. In fact, do it from a place of empowerment. Do it from a place of confidence. And do it from a place of, hmm, I'm just going to enhance. Take your time and do your research to find the best procedure and the best practitioner for you. Perhaps your best friend's physician is not the best one for you. But do your research. Once you've made that decision, honor yourself and your investment by preparing diligently and adhering to post-procedure instructions. So that leads to this week's Fab Five. This week's Fab Five is R. If you are planning to undergo any cosmetic procedures, whether non-surgical or surgical, here are my five tips. Please Try to be in your best physical and medical healthy state. Also, go into it with a healthy, positive state of mind. Keep in mind your beauty goals. Choose your physician based on qualifications and your comfort level, not primarily on price, because it will cost, and it should. Prepare diligently and allow for appropriate recovery. And finally, Make good on your investment and adhere to post-procedure instructions and comply with your follow-up schedule. If you have any questions about plastic surgery or other cosmetic procedures, feel free to contact me either by phone or email or by visiting elementsandgraces.com. Thank you for listening to this week's Forever Fab podcast. Until next time, stay beautiful inside and out. You've just listened to part one of Forever Fab podcast. Please stay tuned for part two coming up next.